Chapter 17 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 17. The Sun. We must now take up the threads laid down in Chapter 13 and trace the progress made in solar astronomy since the middle of the last century. We have noted Schwabe's discovery of the periodicity of sunspots, as it is generally called, the actual state of the case being that the mean spotted area of the sun varies more or less regularly, increasing to a maximum and then decreasing to a minimum, the whole series of changes taking place in a period of approximately 11 years. It was a coincidence that not long after Schwabe commenced his investigation, the problem of terrestrial magnetism was also resolutely attacked. Upon the original initiative of Humboldt, but under the direction of Gauss to a great extent. By 1841, magnetic observatories had been started at Greenwich on the continent and in distant parts of the world. In 1851, Lamont of Munich discovered a period of between 10 and 11 years in the amplitude of the daily variation of magnetic declination, and in 1852, Sabina found practically the same period for the frequency of magnetic storms, noting that this period agreed both in duration and phase with Schwabe's sunspot period. Illustration Sun showing largest spot ever photographed, 1905, February 4. Enlargement of sunspot, 1905, July 15. More accurate determinations from a greater mass of observations have emphasized this agreement, hinting at an intimate connection between sunspots and terrestrial magnetism. The 11-year period was tentatively applied to meteorological records with very little success, except in regard to the frequency of manifestations of aurora borealis, which showed a marked agreement with magnetic disturbances. As an example of the kind of result obtained in meteorological records, we may instance the hot summers of 1846, 1857, and 1868, followed by the well-remembered 1879 with practically no summer at all. But that is another story. Investigation into the connection between sunspots and terrestrial magnetism is still being actively pursued, a striking result recently announced by E. W. Maunder from a discussion of long series of magnetic records at Greenwich and elsewhere, being that there is a marked tendency for a disturbance synchronous with the appearance of a sunspot to be repeated when the sunspot has been carried round through a whole rotation of the sun. Instances can be found when a disturbance has shown in this way for several successive rotations. There is a strong inference that the solar disturbance manifested by the spot is the direct cause of the magnetic disturbance, though the a priori improbability of any solar emanation being directed in a stream to such a distance as that of the Earth is confidently asserted. Still more recently, Mrs. Maunder, analyzing the records of several years' sunspots, has found that consistently greater spotted area is shown in the half-disc coming into view with the rotation than in the half-disc disappearing, a suggested inference being that the spots on the side towards the Earth are affected by that circumstance. The idea of a planetary control for the spots is not new, though Jupiter, on account of its bulk and similar period, between 10 and 11 years, is generally suggested in this connection, but it is very evident that more analysis will be necessary before definite conclusions can be drawn.
The periodicity of solar phenomena is not confined to the spots, but is equally conspicuous in the faculae and prominences, and one obvious step in the tentative solution of the problem is to regard all these manifestations as due to a regular variation of the solar radiation. Much work of a very exhaustive character has been done in the endeavor to determine what is called the radiation constant, or in other words, to find what the direct heating effect of the sun would be on unit area of the earth without the interposition of the atmosphere. Given a reliable value for this, continuous observation of the variation, if any, would ultimately disclose any existing periodicity and many are the forms of special instruments devised for this special purpose, ranging from the simple thermometer with black bulb in vacuo, and the actinometers of Balfour Stewart, Viol, and others, to the differential pure heliometer of Engstrom, all of which indicate, with more or less accuracy, a certain amount of variation. The most striking advance, however, in the determination of the constant is mainly due to the spectrobolometer of Professor Langley, whose death in February 1906 was a great loss to science, and particularly to the Smithsonian Institution of Washington. He had the satisfaction before his death of seeing the inauguration in a specially favorable position of a well-equipped solar observatory at Mount Wilson, California, where work on the lines he had begun can be carried on under the best conditions. Other solar observatories are also at work, a recent example being at Kodaikanal in southern India, while those of the Medon, Paris, and South Kensington have for a longer time been working principally at solar research. Before leaving the subject of radiation, it may be well to indicate some of the points that render the problem one of peculiar difficulty. On the assumption that heat as such comes from the sun to the earth, which is not quite universally admitted as an axiom, it is propagated through the solar atmosphere, through what is often called the ether, or interplanetary space, and through the earth's atmosphere. It may not be propagated similarly in all three media, and without assuming any variation, such as is exceedingly probable, in the sun's atmosphere, the distance traveled through the ether has at any rate an annual variation, and the Earth's atmosphere, or at least the lower part of it, is subject to such great variations in height and density, in circulation, in humidity and composition, each varying element having its own peculiar method of dealing with the radiation, that an enormous number of observations seems to be demanded in order to reduce the number of unknown quantities concerned. Moreover, an increase in the heat radiated from the sun would not necessarily involve an increase in the heat received at the Earth's surface, for one of the first effects might be increased evaporation, and as this generally means increased cloud, a larger proportion of the sun's heat might be prevented from reaching the Earth. The recently established International Union for Solar Research will run no risk of failing for lack of work. It has lately been doubted by some investigators whether the sun's actual diameter is not subject to some law of variation. It does, of course, as viewed from the Earth, appear larger when nearer the Earth. But apart from this annual variation, 
it is suspected that the discordances in actual measures made by different observers, as for instance in the daily meridian observations at Greenwich, are not entirely due to systematic error depending on the altitude of the sun, or to accidental error due to the personal idiosyncrasies of the observer or the state of the air. It is only reasonable to suppose that changes in the radiation of the sun would affect the distance from the sun's true surface of the bright masses that we actually see, so that there is no inherent improbability in a genuine variation of the sun's diameter, besides that very slow shrinkage which is said to be taking place at a rate that would take thousands of years to prove. It has been recently stated by Dr. C. Lane Poor that the polar diameter exceeds the equatorial at times of minimum activity and falls short of it at maxima, but the varying velocity this would cause is difficult to trace. Mention of the varying distance of the sun reminds us of the need for determining that distance. We have seen how far this problem of the solar parallax had progressed up to the middle of the 19th century, and how Hansen and Le Verrier gave reason to suppose that the definitely accepted value derived from Inke's rediscussion of the transit of Venus observations of 1761 and 1769 was incorrect. Not many years afterwards, their plea for a diminution of the sun's mean distance from 95 million miles to about 91 million miles was independently supported by the ingenious determinations by Fizeau and Foucault of the velocity of light by means of revolving mirrors, repeated in 1874 by Cornu and in 1879 by Mitchelson of the U.S. Navy. The new determination was formally adopted in 1864, and Inca's value discarded. Astronomers were, however, loath to reject the observations used by Inca, and first Povalki, 1864, and then Stone, 1868, rediscussed those 18th century transits with improved values for the longitudes of the stations and using greater discrimination in weighting the different observations, and thus had the satisfaction of deducing results nearly in accordance with the newly adopted value. Naturally, the fast-approaching transits of 1874 and 1882 were eagerly awaited as offering a splendid opportunity of clinching matters and obtaining a result free from suspicion of inaccuracy. As early as 1857, programs and schemes of observation began to be drawn up, and the relative expediency of Halley's and Delisle's methods once more argued. Also, since photography had now come into general use, it was hoped that permanent results, free from physiological or psychological errors, would accrue in such numbers that extreme accuracy could hardly fail to emerge in the results. After years of discussion and preparation, including special training of observers, after the outlay of something like a quarter of a million sterling on some 80 stations, ranging from Japan to Mauritius and Kerguelen Island, occupied by parties representing nearly every nationality with any claims to scientific progress, and after generally favorable weather, so that a great mass of material was accumulated for discussion, it had to be confessed that discordances were nearly as great as before. Precautions had been taken to minify the effect of the black drop 
which had been noted on previous occasions, but the great phenomenon that marked the 1874 transit was the disturbing effect of the atmosphere of Venus. The improved optical instruments only served to emphasize this, and observers close together disagreed by sometimes 20 or 30 seconds in their estimate of the time of apparently identical appearances. As for the numerous photographs, except some taken by the Americans with long focused lenses to avoid the necessity of magnifying the image, all were practically useless, as no measures of precision could be made of them owing to the indistinctness of the images. The net result seemed to be to increase slightly the probable error of the accepted value instead of largely reducing it as had been confidently expected. In 1877, a favorable opposition of Mars took place, and Dr. Gill, since knighted, and who only in 1906 resigned the important post of His Majesty's astronomer at the Cape, took a fine heliometer to the island of Ascension and observed the position of Mars in reference to the neighboring stars, morning and evening, in order that the rotation of the Earth should provide him with the necessary baseline, a device due to Airy, but not actually employed before. His result, giving a distance of 93 million miles, was received with great confidence and honored by the bestowal of the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society. The size of Mars is, however, a disturbing factor, and favorable oppositions are comparatively rare, and better measures were considered probable if one of the brighter minor planets with a distance not much greater than that of Mars were observed instead. Some few determinations by the latitude method using different minor planets and one by Aries' diurnal method had already been made. The transit of Venus in 1882 was not regarded with the same enthusiasm as the previous one. Some countries practically ignored it on the ground that the minor planet method was better, cheaper, and of more frequent application. Others, though intending to observe it, did not adhere to an international plan. The ultimate result of all the different methods, the photograph, the heliometer, and eye observations of contacts was once more an array of discordant values. Gill, in 1888 and 1889, applied a modified plan of campaign with great precautions to Iris, Victoria, and Sappho, the idea being to double the observed displacement by simultaneous observations made at opposite sides of the Earth when the planet was just between the stations. Several heliometers were used in cooperation, but the result is generally known as that of Gill and Alkin of Yale College. Several years passed before this result was published, and meanwhile, in 1890, yet another redetermination was made, this time by Professor Newcomb from the transits of 1761 and 1769, and the result agreed closely with the best obtained by other methods. Newcomb had, some years previously, redetermined the velocity of light with a Foucault apparatus on a large scale, his mirrors being more than two miles apart instead of in one room, and his result being far more accurate than any previous one, after having been employed to deduce the solar parallax from the constant of aberration, was employed by Gill in connection with his Iris, Victoria, and Sappho results 
published in 1897, to deduce the constant aberration from the solar parallax. The very next year, 1898, witnessed the discovery of a remarkable minor planet, which known first as 1898 DQ, and subsequently as 433 Eros, was destined to reopen the question of the solar parallax once more. Once in 30 years, this planet comes even nearer to the Earth than Mars, so much of its orbit lying within that of Mars, that the French do not include it in their list of planets between Mars and Jupiter. The advantages a favorable opposition of Eros would provide for the redetermination of the solar parallax were so great that a program was drawn up by an international conference at Paris, by which the next comparatively favorable opportunity in 1900 should be utilized to the full by many cooperating observations, relying mainly on series of photographs showing the apparent motion of Eros among the stars, which could be measured and reduced at leisure and discussed all together. Many photographs have been taken, and after much preliminary discussion, some of them have been measured and the results compared, but it cannot be said that the work is complete, though doubtless when the most favorable opposition arrives it will be found that this pioneer work now in hand will save a great deal of time then. Eros is not the only hope of the solar parallax problem, for at least two other lines of advance remain. Every advance in the lunar theory and in the accuracy of the coefficients of the various inequalities must bring us nearer to the exact values of the constants involved, and one of these is the solar parallax. Work is being done in that direction, and Cole of Greenwich Observatory has, in some preliminary papers, given results which point strongly to the rehabilitation of this method of determination. One other promising side from which the problem is being attacked is the spectroscopic side. We shall, in the next chapter, be dealing more directly with spectroscopy. So it must suffice here to note briefly that one of the fruits of the application of Doppler's principle is that the motion of distant stars in the direction of the observer, or as it is called the line of sight or radial velocity, can be measured and it has been recently pointed out that by using careful discrimination in the choice of stars, and of the time of night and time of year for observing their spectra, it is possible to obtain equations giving not only the radial velocity of the star chosen, but also the velocity of the solar system in space, and of the Earth in its orbit, from which last the distance of the Earth from the Sun, or in other words the solar parallax, can be deduced. This method has already been tried to some extent by Professor Kustner of Bonn, and is still in the field, at the Cape Observatory, among others, but its success in comparison with other methods depends entirely upon the degree of accuracy obtainable in the measures of radial velocity, and it is doubtful if even a large number of independent observations will give a result with a very small probable error. To attain striking success, it must be possible to reduce the probable error of the determination to distinctly less than one part in a thousand, at which it is supposed to stand at present. Another elementary idea in connection with the sun is its rotation, the discovery of which was a necessary consequence of that of sunspots. Galileo himself vaguely indicated the period as about a lunar month, 
and Shina gave 27 days, both these values being meant for the apparent period, the true being some 30-odd hours shorter in consequence of the Earth's orbital revolution taking place in the same direction as the Sun's rotation. Numerous values of the true period were obtained from time to time, ranging from 25 to 25 and a half days, no one for two centuries except Shiner, letting fall any hint as to the period being variable. Shiner noticed that different spots gave different periods, the longest he obtained being from a spot in a higher latitude. Ultimately, however, it was pointed out by C. H. F. Peters in 1855 that a careful series of observations made at Naples ten years before showed unmistakably that spots were not fixed, and consequently could not be expected to agree in giving an exact value of the rotation period. At this time Carrington, who had been building himself an observatory at Red Hill with the intention of providing from his own observations a catalogue of circumpolar stars, took up also the daily observation and measurement of position of sunspots, which had been recommended by Sir John Herschel, so that his days as well as his nights might find him astronomical employment. He made the important discovery, hinted at more than two centuries before by Shiner, that the period of the sun's surface rotation increases from rather less than 25 days at the solar equator to about 27 and a half days for spots at the highest latitude at which they occurred, about 50 degrees. He represented the variable rotation by an empirical formula without any attempt to explain the cause. He also determined with great accuracy the direction of the sun's axis of rotation, which points about halfway between the present pole star and the brightest that can ever have held that position, Vega or a Lyrae. Another result of his labors was the notable connection between the mean latitude of sunspots and the epoch in relation to the sunspot period, the spot zones on either side of the solar equator gradually contracting towards it as the minimum approached, the zone of maximum being at about 16 degrees latitude, and each successive series dying away at about latitude 6, while the new one was often already beginning near latitude 35 degrees. Professor Wolf of Zurich, whose historical knowledge of sunspots was unrivaled, soon found confirmation in previous observations, and Spurer and Secchi proved the truth of the law at the next minimum in 1867. Spurer, whose name is generally given to this law of zones, was working at Enklam in Pomerania, and independently discovered the variation of rotation with latitude about two years later than Carrington. He unearthed evidence of the truth of the law of zones for many previous minima, the earliest being that of 1619, but found that for about 70 years, 1645 to 1716, there were very few sunspots at all, and consequently no apparent law. On the foundation of the new astrophysical observatory at Potsdam in 1874, he was appointed to the staff there, and worked at sunspots until his death in 1895, twenty years after that of Carrington. But a powerful instrument was already being perfected while Carrington was at work, which was destined to throw more and more light on solar mysteries. 
End of chapter 17.